Now we return this morning to our interrupted series of sermons on the Gospel of Matthew. And we have come to a text that is rarely preached. It may be read in the course of reading the account of the crucifixion of the Lord, but it is rarely preached, by which I mean it is rarely proclaimed. It is rarely set before God's people for their faith and for their obedience. But it is a text to be preached, and as I realized, as I considered it, a text as good for a New Year's Day sermon as any other that might be chosen. Hence, back to Matthew to pick up where we left off at chapter 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. As evening approached, that is, the body needed to be buried before sundown, as required in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, and before the beginning of the Sabbath, as Jewish Sabbath regulations require. We learn from other, the other Gospels that this Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin who had opposed the plot against Jesus and was, in fact, still at this time, something of a secret disciple. This act on his part was a coming out into the open. While the Lord's crucifixion sent most of his disciples into hiding, it had the opposite effect on Joseph. He not only identified himself as a follower of Christ, but went cap in hand to Pontius Pilate, no doubt unsure of what sort of reception he would receive. He would have had to have been a man of means to own a tomb unused so near the capital. John tells us that Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus another of the Lord's disciples who was a member of the Sanhedrin. And that Pilate gave the body to Joseph is in itself noteworthy. The Romans did not ordinarily bury crucified bodies. They simply threw them out on the ground. It was part of the deterrent effect of this manner of crucifixion. The Jewish piety forbade that treatment of these men. But even the Jews buried executed criminals in a common grave without honor and forbade their being buried in family tombs. It is not clear that Joseph's tomb would have been allowed to be used for anyone else had it been used to bury a criminal. And so this was an act of even greater generosity and sacrifice on Joseph's part. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. It's interesting to remember and to contemplate this. It seems to have been Joseph of Arimathea who actually took the Lord's body down from the, cro from the cross in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. The description of this tomb, which would have had niches uh, cut into the sides of the chamber or chambers upon which to rest the bodies, agrees with the appearance of tombs from that period that can still be seen in and around Jerusalem today. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. These women, you remember, were mentioned in verse 56 as also witnesses of the cross and the Lord's death. They are now witnesses of his burial. Our Father in heaven, now we come to this part of the account of 
Christ's passion for us and our salvation, may it do its perfect work in us as well. And may our faith be strengthened, our hope and our love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In works of literature, especially novels, in which complications in the plot lead to a final crisis or climax, either happy or catastrophic, there usually follows what is called in literary criticism the denouement. This French term, which literally means the untying or unraveling, refers to that part of the story following the climax, the crisis, in which the knots of the plot are all untied and everything is resolved in a final outcome. It is often brief, sometimes a chapter, sometimes a few paragraphs, sometimes a single sentence that lets us know what has or will become of the hero or the heroine. The denouement is the letting out of one's breath after the crisis has been passed. Well, in the narrative of the Lord's passion, his suffering and death for our sin, the climax, the crisis, is unmistakably the crucifixion. That is what everything is pointing toward in the three years of the ministry that precede this, and certainly what everything is pointing toward, building up to in the Passion Week itself. That's why, as we read in the Gospel of John in 19, verse 30, one of the Lord's last utterances on the cross was, It is finished! But the story of the Passion does not actually end there on the cross. There is one brief final chapter, the denouement, which is the account of the Lord's burial. There is, of course, another fabulous turn in the plot still to come, the Lord's resurrection. But of the account of the crucifixion, the Lord's burial is the denouement. There is no doubt that the burial of the Lord is something of an anticlimax, a letdown after the earth-shaking and breathtaking events of those fateful hours before and while the Lord hung on the cross. The sound and fury of the religious leadership, the crowd, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiery, the Lord's suffering, the darkness, the earthquake, the tearing of the temple curtain, all is now past and we end the day and the account in the peace and quiet of a tomb. But that quiet ending is also an absolutely essential part of the story of our Savior's death. And it serves as both the historical and the theological resolution of the crisis through which the Lord passed on the cross. The Lord's burial was not an incidental matter. And the Christian church long ago realized that. In the second century Apostles' Creed and in the fourth century Nicene Creed, we believe, we confess, in Jesus Christ who was crucified, dead, and buried. And that creed is based on the explicit teaching of the New Testament itself. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul wrote the church in Corinth, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised again on the third day, and so on. Paul in Romans 6 treats the matter of great importance also, or treats it as a matter of great importance also, that Jesus Christ was buried for us, and that when he was buried, we 
were buried in him and with him. So the burial of the Lord following upon his death on the cross is not simply an historical detail. It is taught in the scripture and has been confessed by the church that it is part of the narrative of the Lord's passion and so the story of our salvation, an important part of what he did for us. But how is this so? Think with, either, think, think with me this morning about this event, the denouement of the narrative of the Lord's passion, so carefully reported in all four of the Gospels. What is the significance of the Lord's burial? I want to say uh, two things in answer to that question. First, Christ's burial was significant because it was the culmination. It was the completion. We might say it was the perfection of the Lord's humiliation and his suffering for our sins. Now, we might have thought otherwise. After all, he had already on the cross and just before giving up his spirit cried out, it is finished. He certainly meant that the work he had come into the world to perform, he had now completed. And we saw last time that when he died, while still on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying that the way to God and to heaven had been opened for sinners. But these facts notwithstanding, it would not be precisely accurate to say that the full work of suffering for sin had been completed on the cross. Surely it had been completed in a general sense. The great work had been done, but the last dregs of the cup of God's wrath had still to be drunk. The Lord's burial belongs to his humiliation, his suffering, his death. It is not the climax of it, but it is the conclusion and the complete, completion and the perfection of it. Think of some ways in which this is so. First, his burial was the full and final demonstration of the reality of his death. We've all heard of cases of people who were thought to have died but were subsequently discovered to be still alive. I remember the night my father died. We children were gathered around his hospital bed, anticipating any moment his death, wondering if that particular breath would be his last. But it grew late, and finally it was time for me to take my mother home. And while I was gone, my um, sisters and brother thought that he had died, and the nurse, in fact, thought that he had as well. But after a minute or two, without a breath, he took another one. And then another one after that, and continued to live and to breathe for some time after I had arrived back at the hospital. But we're struck by such cases only because we're unfamiliar with death and how it happens. And because even those cases are relatively unusual, though people are dying every day. But any such mistake like that is very soon realized to be a mistake. The dead are soon known to be so. And the fact is, anyone who's been around dead bodies knows how very well and utterly unlike a living body a dead one is, even a short time after death. How very well anyone can notice the difference between life and death. The color disappears from the skin, the heat from the body, all the tone to which life uh, or which life imparted to muscles disappears, breathing ceases, and movement 
with it. The eyes go blank. The jaw goes slack. And in Jesus' case, John, the public demonstration and evidence of his death. We should see it as part of that complex of events which, taken together, constitute Christ's death in our place and for our salvation. The beatings, the mockery, the crucifixion itself, and the tomb. Some, you know, would later allege that Jesus only appeared to have died. The tomb is impressive evidence that it was not so. He was dead. He was seen to be dead. He was moved as a dead man and buried accordingly. But his burial is the culmination of his death in another way. Only when followed by burial did his death become the authentic experience of human death that the law required of him if he was to take our place and suffer our fate. Real death, the real human experience of death, involves not only the passage of the spirit from the body, but the finality of that separation between body and soul. The shame of the body without life, without beauty, without strength, without vitality of any kind. Real death involves the grave. I stood near a grave this past Wednesday, that of Mr. Shaw, not actually at the grave. They don't let you do that at a national cemetery, but at this, at this place where the service, the graveside service, is to be held. And there at the end, the soldiers push the casket away, and it goes behind the wall and out of sight. And frankly, it will never be seen again by any of us who were there for that service. There's a finality at that place, in that moment, that is impossible to deny. Life is done. The body is placed in the ground, out of sight. No life remaining in it. And Abraham Kuyper puts that point bluntly. Christ would not be a complete Savior for us if he had not descended into the grave. And still in a third way, the Lord's burial was the culmination of his death. It was the most dramatic evidence of his failure before the eyes of men. Oh yes, they loved him, those men and women who buried Jesus. They loved him very much. They were heartbroken at his death. But how well did they know him? It's hard to believe that they thought they were burying the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They were burying a prophet, perhaps, a very great and a good man who had brought them nearer to God. But now he was gone, a man among other mortal men. To them, his death was the end, the finish of his life and work in the world as it is for any man or woman. Would you love to talk to those people and to ask them what they were thinking about Jesus when they laid him in that tomb? We know what they were not thinking about him, but what were they thinking about him? Who did they feel he was? And we're talking about his friends, his followers. What of his enemies? They were sure that finally they had eliminated this thorn in their side. They sighed with relief. They grinned to one another with satisfaction. And they went home to their Passover celebrations and the beginning of their Sabbath day. Never had Christ's true identity been so completely hidden as it was hidden when that lifeless body was laid in that tomb. 
Never had the difference between the majesty of the Son of God and the body of the man Jesus of Nazareth been as great as it was when Jesus was laid in that grave. The simple fact is that had his followers understood, had they anything but the smallest and weakest faith, had they any grasp of who Jesus was and what was to happen, they would not have buried him. Or they would have buried him differently. The arrangements for his burial, later for the embalming, all indicate that nobody was expecting his resurrection a few days later. The Gospels make it perfectly clear how much of a surprise, a shock, this was to everyone. The tomb, the spices were intended for a person who had died, whose body was going to rot, who would remain in the grave. See the Lord now, dead, a failure, his work come to nothing. His enemies with their feet upon his neck, his followers scattered and dispirited. Think back to the Sunday before his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem to the hosannas of those great crowds. Think back to the year before when on the Mount of Transfiguration in Galilee the divine glory had shone from him. Could there be a more complete reversal of fortune? His body now lying stiff and cold in a tomb, his eyes lifeless, his jaw slack, his skin a pallid gray, his disciples scattered in fear, his closest women friends making preparations to embalm him when the Sabbath was over. No crowds to cheer, no followers to hang on his every word. This then is the end of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And this was the last part of the price of our salvation, brothers and sisters, the complete disintegration of the reputation of Jesus Christ, his complete failure in the eyes of men, those who loved him and those who hated him. This was the bottom rung of the ladder down into that abject poverty and shame down which he had to climb to its bottom that we might become rich in him. That garden tomb held our Savior, and in that tomb, the finishing touches were put on our salvation and our eternal life. But the role the burial plays in his humiliation and his suffering and death is not the whole story of the place of his burial in the account of our salvation. In the second place, we should see the Lord's burial, not only as the culmination of his humiliation, but as the bridge to and anticipation of his exaltation, his victory over sin and death on our behalf. And there are also various and striking indications of this in the narrative. First, of course, is the amazing fact, long before prophesied by Isaiah, that though the Lord died the death of a common criminal, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. John tells us that this tomb was located in a garden. We read here that it had never been used. This was an expensive tomb, a rich man's tomb. The Lord was the first body ever laid in that tomb. John also tells us that Nicodemus, who assisted Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of Jesus, supplied 75 pounds of fragrant spices. It's a huge amount, the amount that would be reserved for a king. 
you have these two disciples of the Lord Jesus burying this man who had been crucified in this most extraordinary way against all the conventions of Roman law and Jewish custom. God saw to it that though to men a failure, Jesus was nevertheless buried in a way failures are not. The father was laying claim to his son's prerogatives as the king of kings even before his resurrection. He was buried in the eyes of many as a criminal, but the manner of his burial was testimony to his innocence of any crime and his royalty. And then further, take note of Joseph, the member of the Sanhedrin, and think of Nicodemus, not mentioned here, but who accompanied him, as John tells us. Nicodemus, you remember, was the man who came to Jesus at night and with whom Jesus had that remarkable conversation about the new birth that we read in John 3. And later of Nicodemus, we read in John 7 that he had sought to defend the Lord, if perhaps in a certain timid way, before the council of the Sanhedrin. But now at this darkest moment, both of these men reveal their true colors and come out into the open about their loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth. What a time to reveal that when the twelve had fled and the Lord seemed to have been completely overcome by his enemies. What an exquisitely beautiful demonstration of the Lord's power over the hearts and lives of men. That his sheep will hear his voice and follow him, come wind, come weather. And of his capacity to make heroes out of cowards and men of faith out of men of sight and sense. I love these two men. What lions. Even their little and confused faith in Jesus made them. Church history will be full of their followers, by the way. Men who had everything to lose by any public identification with Christ and his people. And nevertheless displayed their loyalty to him and to them, no matter the cost. I think of the lone nobleman who stuck out his hand to shake the hand of John Huss as he was being led out of that courtroom, having been condemned to death by all the wealthy and powerful men of Europe. A man who publicly identified himself with the convicted and the man to be executed. Or think of Lord Burley, who when the Scottish Council or Parliament had voted that the dying Samuel Rutherford could not be, die, could not be allowed to die in his own rooms at St. Andrews University, alone rose among his peers and identified himself by saying, you have voted that honest man out of the college, but you cannot vote him out of heaven. There is here in these two men, these two brave and courageous men, evidence of the sway that Jesus will exercise over the hearts of untold multitudes of men and women. In these two good and brave men who buried the Lord Jesus, you have the church as it will become in the centuries to follow. The faith, the bravery, the courage, the defiance of that vast multitude who will believe in Jesus and follow him and honor him in defiance of the opposition of the world. Now we also learn elsewhere 
as had also long before been prophesied in David's Psalm 16, that the Lord's body did not, in fact, suffer decomposition, as would have been the case with any other human remains, unbeknownst to Joseph or to Nicodemus or the women, and no thanks to the 75 pounds of aromatic spices, that tomb did not even begin to become that place of stench and putrefaction that it would certainly have become for anyone else. His body was being kept by the power of God for the resurrection on the third day. We don't learn that here in Matthew. We learn it elsewhere in the scripture. But it's worth our remembering as we consider the burial of our Lord. Now, all of this we can mention without so much as imagining what it must have been when the soul of Jesus Christ, the man, accompanied by the soul of that believing thief, arrived that Friday in the heavenly courts. That was the Lord's human nature's first appearance in heaven. And what do you suppose the tumult was there then? With the prince in human nature back in triumph. For those few hours before returning to earth to take up his body once again Easter morning. We can't imagine what the celebration must have been like there and then. The company of just men made perfect. The angelic hosts. And now the Son returned to his Father's throne. And the Holy Spirit and the Father together. Seeing in heaven for the very first time the human nature of God the Son. The thunderous welcome of untold numbers of voices. The glory of God resplendent. Christ the Son amongst all those who loved him, who worshipped him, who awaited his return. So while the culmination and nadir of his death, the Lord's burial was also the sign and even the moment of wonderful things coming and soon to come. Now then. Many of us, indeed all of us, in differing degrees, are afraid to die. We're afraid of death. No matter how much as Christians we may believe that Christ has conquered death and removed its sting for all who trust in him, no matter how firmly we may believe in the prospect of heaven after death, death still to some degree holds us in thrall. We shrink from it. From the experience of it, surely. We don't think much about it, even though we believe it is our path to everlasting joy. On a New Year's Day, we're forced to reckon with the passing of our lives as the years fall away behind us. The rapid, relentless, on-rushing of time. But otherwise, we think of this very little. We are, we are ashamed to admit it, too much like those 19th century Muslims who, though strict fatalists in their theology, when Medina was struck by the plague, all fled the city to the comparative refuge of the desert. Though they confessed that the plague was a messenger sent from heaven to call them to a better world, they excused their flight on the grounds that being conscious of their own unworthiness, they did not feel that they merited this special mark of divine favor. And we too fear death and shrink from it in defiance of our theology and our faith in Christ. We know we should not. We are embarrassed that we do. And we fully appreciate how different, how much better and more powerful would our lives be as a witness to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ were we to carry about with us a living sense of the Lord's absolute victory over death, of his having left it impotent and toothless 
But here the Lord's burial will, will help us, and not only at the time when we come to die, but to live our lives today in the triumph of our Savior, to live daily with the certain expectation of far more wonderful things to come on the other side when death shall have taken us to that place where everyone has everlasting joy upon his head. Here is a thought for the new year that arises directly out of our text and from this history. Someday, for some of us much sooner than later, and for all of us much sooner than he or she thinks, you and I will be carried into a cemetery. We'll be laid in a box and brought in a hearse to a place of burial. The words will be spoken up, spoken of us and spoken over us and our loved ones, comforted in their loss. And our bodies in the casket will be lowered into the cold ground and covered with darkness. Gradually, the circle of folk who will have gathered that day around that grave will scatter and will get on with their lives and will be left behind in our solitary resting place. Our death will be sealed with burial, just as our Savior's was. No one will mistake the fact that the end has come for us in this world. A hard thought, but then not so hard for those who know that we were buried in Christ so that we might be raised with him. That he was buried for us just as he died for us and just as he rose again for us. He went into the tomb precisely because we must go into the tomb. He went before us and on our behalf. My prayer for all of us is that we might come to have more and more of that deep and strong and pure piety which comes from the careful recollection of and meditation upon that mighty work from Bethlehem to the garden tomb that Jesus Christ performed for our salvation. Great joy, great faith, great peace, great love belong to those upon whose hearts these truths are written. If you ever walked through an old Christian cemetery and been reminded, as I have on several memorable occasions in my life, how the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ lie at the heart of everything we believe, everything we are, and everything we shall become as Christians. The gravestones read what our hearts should always remember. Corruption, earth, and worms shall but refine this flesh till my triumphant spirit comes to put it on afresh. Or God my Redeemer lives and often from the skies looks down and watches all my dust till he shall bid it rise. Or I shall sleep sound in Jesus, filled with his likeness rise, to live and to adore him, to see him with these eyes. Between me and resurrection, but paradise doth stand. And then, then for glory, dwelling in Emmanuel's land. Or, people, if you have any prayers, say prayers for me. And lay me under a Christian stone in that lost land I thought my own. To wait till the holy horn is blown. 
and all poor men are free. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Amen.